Welcome to Talking with the Animals, an exploration of animal communication. Join animal communicator, craniosacral therapist, and NES practitioner Caroline Pope as she discusses how to understand other species as they truly are, not just from the human perspective. That's right, Mecco. Discover how communicating with our four-legged friends can open up a whole new world for both of you. And now, your host and Australia's most recognized and well-known animal communicator, Caroline Pope. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Talking with the Animals. I'm your host, Caroline Pope. Thank you for joining me. Today's episode's going to be a little bit different. I'm delighted to have author, extraordinaire, art historian, ex-vet, and let's not forget the most important part, my champ and my magical unicorns, fairy godmother, Catherine Kovacic here. We're discussing animals in art and basically Kath's literary career. And if you haven't read her books, I will list them in the notes. Please jump online and um, have a look at them. They are fabulous from a totally unbiased point of view, of course. And now, here's Kath. Hi, Caroline. Great to join you on the podcast today. Thank you. So, Kath, I've got to ask, how did on earth did you go from a working veterinarian to an art historian to an author? I mean, it's not exactly your usual um, job transference, shall we say. Right. Well, this is sort of the how long have you got kind of answer. But um, first of all, going from a vet to an art historian, I took it was going to be six months off from vet work to work in the family business uh, to help out because I worked in that business all through school and I knew it back to front and needed help. So six months became three years. And uh, during that time, I um, I took a couple of art subjects at Melbourne Uni just like because you could do it without sort of having to do assessment and stuff just for interest sake because I'd always done science. And it was really interesting. And so while still working in the family business, I did some, you know, night study and I got my master's and then my PhD in art history. And what was really interesting for me in art was the way animals were portrayed in art. So that was what sort of got me onto that one. And I don't know about, well, then going to an author, that's probably a whole other story that is probably not so relevant to animals. So let's, we'll leave the whole author thing aside. It kind of fell on from the art history thing though. Okay, well, we'll certainly get to the author in a minute because uh, there's Hogarth, the wonderful wolfhound in your Alex Clayton books, and there was a Labrador, I believe, in Seven Sisters. But what part of animals in art were you um, specifically interested in and how did that interest all kick up? Well, what really interested me at first was the the human-animal bond, the depiction of animals and people together and the way they interact on the canvas. And um, I think I was also really interested because art historians, from what I was reading at the time, tend not to be animal people. So they wouldn't know what breeds they were looking at. And they'd also have lots of sort of allegorical and, um, and really interesting ways to explain what the animal was supposed to mean in the painting. You know, the dog was there as a sign of valor. Or conversely, the dog was there as a sign of sexual lasciviousness. You know, I don't know how they quite add up together. But it kind of annoyed me as a vet and an animal person that 
all these dogs and cats and other animals were kind of getting this really weird art historical rap when really, uh, for me, I could see that sometimes those animals were there because the artist just wanted them there and sometimes the people wanted them there. You know, if it's a portrait of a human and an animal, uh, the person wanted their pet dog or cat or whatever in the picture rather than it necessarily representing something. And um, one of the examples that particularly comes to mind is a lovely portrait, a Renaissance portrait of uh, Cosimo de Medici, um, no, not Cosimo Medici, uh, Lorenzo Gonzaga in the Prado Museum, and he's got a small white fluffy dog with him, what we would call um, a Bolognese today. And there's all this stuff about how that he was trying to marry some new woman after getting rid of his last wife. And the white dog is supposed to represent his purity and his, his, you know, his good prospects and all the valorous things that he's going to bring to this new marriage. But what they don't tell you is that the Gonzaga family actually bred Bolognese dogs. And to me, that's a lot more relevant and a lot more of a reason to have the dog in the picture than any potential marriage prospects that he was trying to conjure up. So those were the sort of things that got me really into art and looking at how animals were portrayed. Oh, that's gold. Human nature really does not change, does it? And yeah, animals in art, animals in animal communication, so much of it, unfortunately, is what the animals represent to the people or about the people's involvement with them rather than the actual animal itself. Um, Can you list for me, Kath, all the books you've done, um, both fiction, non-fiction, and those in art, please. Yeah, sure, Caroline. First of all, I'm going to say, sorry I dropped the Medici name in there, but the thing is that the Medici's also bred little Bolognese dogs, so that's where the confusion comes from me because they appear in those paintings too. In terms of books, I've done quite a lot of um, art catalogues or contributed to them, but the actual book started with the Alex Clayton series. So that's my art historian sleuth with her dog Hogarth by her side. The first is The Portrait of Molly Dean. The second is uh, Painting in the Shadows. And the third is The Shifting Landscape. Then there is the historical true crime, The Schoolgirl Strangler. There is the TV to book uh, adaption of the Ms. Fisher's murder mysteries called Just Murdered. Uh, there is my latest crime thriller, Seven Sisters, which you mentioned has a Labrador in it. And there is also uh, just recently published a non-fiction book, Historical Photographs of Dogs called Australia's Dogs. Quite a collection. And I'm sorry, Kath, but I am going to do this to you. Uh, can you please explain to our listeners the legend of the polar bear in uh, Painting in the Shadows? That is one of my all-time favourites. The polar bear made me do it. Oh, I know how much you love that one, Caroline. So in Painting in the Shadows, I reference a painting, an actual painting by the artist Sir Edwin Landseer, and it has the very um, doom and gloom title, Man Proposes, God Disposes. And what it relates to is a, um, a failed uh, expedition to find the Northwest Passage in the Arctic, and that was under the, the auspices of Captain Franklin. And, in fact, 149 people disappeared in the Arctic, never to be seen again. Various search parties were sent out. They found some relics, nothing much. And it was this huge thing in England in, and in America, but particularly in England in the, uh, the 1850s and 1860s. And Edwin Lancier painted his interpretation of this painting, of the um, events. But what he did was he painted two polar bears with a wrecked uh, sort of uh, lifeboat and um, – relics around it and uh, the polar bears are sort of gnawing on ribs and things and 
this is a bit of a subtle reference because there was lots of suggestion that perhaps the party had descended into cannibalism before they'd all died. So that was the hot rumour, wildly denied by uh, uh, Lady Franklin, Lady Jane Franklin, the captain's wife, obviously. And so this was a really, it was amazing when this painting went up on display um, at the annual exhibition in England. The painting was subsequently bought by uh, a ladies' college, and it hung for many years in their gallery. And uh, the gallery was then turned into an exam room in the 20th century. But the thing is that one year a student freaked out about the painting, couldn't do the exam sitting next to it. It was horrible. It was too frightening. Couldn't do the exam. And someone ran out. They, they wanted to run the exam. So someone ran out and grabbed a Union Jack and covered the painting because it was the only thing big enough to cover this massive painting, hid the painting with the flag, and the exam went on. But then all these rumours started to spring up about what happened if you looked at the painting while you were doing your exam. Did you go mad? Did you gouge your eyes out? Did you write over and over again on the exam, the polar bears made me do it, and then run out of the exam room and kill yourself? So there's this whole horrifying freak show thing going on about the cursed painting. And even to this day at Holloway College in England, where the painting still hangs, that painting is covered by the Union Jack every year when they sit exams in that room because students still freak out. <laughs> Love it. it. You can see, everyone, why that's one of my favourites. And I also believe, Kath, that um, animals have been used in art uh, to depict or acknowledge spirit. Is that right? Yeah, that's a really interesting aspect, um, particularly you see that in Renaissance art, but um, for something like the Annunciation, you know, where Gabriel comes and tells Mary that she's going to, to have the, the Holy Child, very often you'll find that there'll be a cat or a dog in the room that is looking at the angel, that can see the angel, that is reacting to that, because humans otherwise can't see this. Um, the conversion of Paul or Saul on the road to Damascus, we get a horse in there, and if you actually go and read the Bible, there's no... It doesn't say he's riding to Damascus. He was definitely walking. But we put a horse in there because, once again, the horse can see the angel, can see the spirit, and can tell us that there is something miraculous going on. Uh, those, are, those are two of my little favourite ones there. But there's lots and lots of other examples where the animals can see something that's going on that the humans in the painting can't. Yeah, well, as they say, life imitates art, I believe. Well, that's certainly true because... Yes, animals usually see spirit much, much more clearly than we do. And, uh, you know, I often joke about one of mine being a spookometer because uh, Anya reacts so much more and so much more quickly to spirit in the house or wherever we are than, uh, than I do. I certainly don't pick up on it like he does. Now, um, tell me what you've done in regards to your book with the National Library of uh, Australia. What what are you doing with that or what have you done with that? Because I believe that's just been published. Am I right? That's right. That one just came out in May. It's called Australia's Dogs and it's really a lot of fun because what I was able to do was to really dig deeply into the National Library's collection of historic photographs and look at dogs in our society from, from the beginning of photography in Australia, so from the, the late 1800s right through to the present day, again looking at that human-animal bond, lots of pictures of, of just lovely doggos, um, dingoes of course, but what interested me there and I came into the National Library collection looking at paintings first of all and went down this massive rabbit hole when I realised what a fabulous collection of photographs they had. Um, so you can look at 
the history of Australia through the eyes of dog ownership. But the really lovely thing for me is those early pictures where not everyone had a camera or, you know, only cameras in professional studios. So you had to pay quite a bit of money to go down and have your portrait done. And the number of people who chose to take their dogs and have them included in that very special, very expensive picture just spoke volumes to me about the importance of dogs in early Australian life. And then when we get people getting, you know, the Kodak box brownie and starting to take snapshots the number of dogs that were just part of family life all the, the lovely breeds and the lovely bitses gee we, we love crossbred dogs in australia they've been there from the very beginning and seeing those pictures i think particularly you know back in the day when you you couldn't actually just erase it from your phone when you took a bad picture you had to wait take it down the chemist, see how those pictures developed, and then you threw out the bad ones. The number of bad ones that didn't get thrown out because the dog was in it is really, really interesting. And that just speaks volumes to me about dogs in Australian life. So this is a lovely book. I'm, I'm quite delighted with it. Text by me, but, you know, you could just about get it just for the pictures really because that's what this one's all about. Yeah, the human-animal bond, it really hasn't changed that much. And, I mean, particularly I think people can relate these days because a lot of those people, particularly in country areas, really were very isolated and a lot of them would have relied on their um, pet dogs in the same way people relied on their animals during COVID. I mean, essentially different reasons, but you were still very isolated and your um, animals became one of your main companions. Now, speaking of companions, tell me about the gorgeous Hogarth the Wolfhound. How did he come into being? And uh, I'd like to learn a little bit more about him, please. Okay, so Hogarth is uh, Hogarth is the dog in my Alex Clayton art mystery series, and he's uh, Alex's constant companion. He runs a bit of security too. Um, he's also her confidant. But he came about because. First of all, she's a bit of a loner, so she needed to have someone there. Um, and I wanted her to have a dog. And for those of us who have, have dogs, I have big doggos myself, but you kind of have that idea of what breed goes with what person. And for me, shaping the character of Alex Clayton, if I'd given her a golden retriever, for example, for my readers, I think she would have come across as a very different person. Or if she'd had a, a small, you know, like a, a little doggo that she could stick in her handbag when she went to the art gallery, you would have a very different feeling about the sort of person that she was. So to give her a big doggo um, and a dog like an Irish wolfhound who, you know, can look a little bit intimidating at first, but when you get to know them, they're just kind of big cuddle bugs. That's kind of what she is too. Not so much the cuddle bug, but she's standoffish at first. But when you get to know her, once you're in her circle, she's your friend for life. So the dog is, in this regard, is kind of a foil for her personality and gives you a, a way into her character. But he's also important as a character in his own right in these books because as many of us do, Alex talks to her dog. He, you know, gives her the, the eye roll and the heavy sigh that we're all familiar with as um, as dog people. And, uh, and so that that's sort of a little bit of comic relief within the book too. So that's where Hogarth comes into the whole thing. And I have to tell you about his name because that's relevant too. Hogarth uh, was an artist, William Hogarth, a British artist. He actually owned pugs, I have to say. So there's a whole thing about Hogarth and his pugs and the pugs that he painted. But 
this dog needed an artistic name, obviously, because Alex is an art dealer. But one of the things Hogarth did was he did a series of etchings called The Four Stages of Cruelty. And this is relevant for writing crime fiction. The first one shows a young boy being cruel to an animal. And by the time you get through to the fourth etching in this series, he has committed murder and he is being hanged. So it's this really nice little tie back into the art world and to crime writing for the dog to be named Hogarth. As we say, some things never change. I mean, they were in the late 1700s, so we can really see human nature doesn't change and it's exactly the same now, unfortunately. But there you go. I actually didn't know about Hogarth's name either. Can you tell me about the Labrador in Seven Sisters? Because I noticed there's a lab there and yet none of the uh, Seven Sisters own dogs or any animals for that matter, I think, by memory. Well, the dog in Seven Sisters is – he's kind of important because – This is a very different sort of book. So the Alex Clayton books are perhaps more cosy crime. But Seven Sisters is, well, it's been described as a vigilante justice revenge thriller. So make of that what you will. But I really wanted the dog there for two reasons. First of all, part of this book or the background for this book is domestic violence. And we all know that animals are so often victims in this too, whether they've been physically injured or whether it's just the emotional fallout or whether, in fact, it is the animal that is preventing a woman from being able to get out of a domestic violence situation. What's she going to do with her animal? Where is she going to go? So I wanted there to be a dog in this book for that angle. But the other thing is that what's just happened in the book, and this is a slight spoiler alert, I'm going to tell you, the woman in question has just killed a man and now she's got to figure out how to rescue the dog. So what it gave me a chance to do was to give her humanity, was to make her a softer character and a more sympathetic character and um, to, to get the reader more on her side because, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing that and she has a wobble, she has a mental wobble. I've just killed a man and now I'm rescuing the dog. What's wrong with me? And it's a... Uh, I don't know if there's anything wrong with her personally, but hey, that's me and I get to write that book. So that's that's the interesting thing about having the dog in there, I think. And it, it really it also really matters from that domestic violence point of view that we think about the whole family, not just the humans, obviously women and children most important, but we've got to think of the animals in these situations too. Yeah, unfortunately, that's still something that um, I know I used to see a lot of vet nursing and even as an animal communicator, it's not that uncommon um, you'll even hear it in the streets when you hear people yelling and stuff and you'll hear the dog out the back if it's lucky and it'll be barking or howling because it's distressed. I know there are some shelters that uh, take animals for women or men, if for that matter, that are trying to escape domestic violence and at least it gives the dog somewhere to go and the people somewhere to get out. But um, unfortunately, my guess is, particularly in Victoria, funding will be cut for that um, as pretty much well as everything else right now. So what are your plans moving forward, apart from being the unicorn's fairy godmother? What else is in the works for you, Kath? Well, there is another Alex Clayton mystery in the works, um, more work for Hogarth, which has been really fun to write. Um, I've also got another character that I'm playing around with. We're off on a bit of a road trip around Australia. I don't think that there are any dogs in this one, which is interesting. Um, so we'll see how that how that goes. And um, and I've got I've got a couple of characters sitting in the back of my head who are you know making a bit of noise, and I'm going to have to deal with. And now you've reminded me about polar bears. I think there's got to be you know there's got to be more polar bears somewhere around, doesn't there? There's just 
Oh, it's in my head now, Caroline. What am I going to do? It's going to be a polar bear mystery. <laughs> yeah, it's always all my fault, isn't it? And I'm fortunate. I get to read them all before Kath publishes them. Um, you'll have to take a trip to the Arctic. That's definitely or Antarctica. Uh, Vikings, I wonder, anything to do with polar bears because Vikings seem to be fairly popular at the moment. Maybe you can do Vikings and polar bears. I don't know. Well, if we're talking polar bears, it's definitely got to be the Arctic for starters. But, yeah, I reckon we can probably probably get some Vikings, polar bears, you know, longboats kind of stuff going on. You know, horned helmets, lots of, you know, ah kind of sounds. How does that work for you? <laughs> Works well. Viking true crime. Or the Viking equivalent of Miss Marple. Would it be Mr. Marple? I guess we'll find out. Uh, I'll certainly let you know, everybody, when Kath does come out with her Viking sleuth book. It'll be fun. So I want to thank Kath very much today for coming on the podcast and discussing animals in various aspects of art. I will put in the notes um, references and probably the covers, I think, if I can get copies of all of them of her books if you haven't read them fabulous and if you read the schoolgirl strangler i can promise you after the judge's comment you'll never look at an axe in the same way again thanks so much for having me on the podcast caroline i am going to have to talk to my publisher about the viking sleuth thing before we go down that particular rabbit hole but um it's been an absolute blast we've, we've covered some crazy topics i've had a lot of fun thank you Thank you for listening to this episode of Talking With The Animals. As always, don't forget to like and subscribe. Feel free to look up Kath's books. They really are worth reading. If there's any topics you'd like me to cover, please drop me a line. I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, stay safe. And when you can, remember to talk with the animals. Thank you for listening to Talking With The Animals. To learn more about Caroline and the services she provides, visit caroline-pope.com. You can also find her on Facebook at Caroline Pope Animal Communicator CST and NES Therapy. Are you ready to change the way you see your world and the animals in it? Well, we know his answer. Don't forget to subscribe and see you next time.